This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 142. And the quote of the day is from Scott Belsky, who said, when 99% of people doubt your idea, you're either gravely wrong or about to make history. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And this session is brought to you by DW Drums. Why do I play DW? Because they make great handcrafted drums. But not only that, they also support and foster drumming initiatives all over the world, much like this podcast. This podcast is 100% free thanks to the folks at DW. So do me a favor, be sure to thank them on social for their support of the podcast. It really, really means a lot. The session is also brought to you by Promark, makers of Select Balance. And Select Balance is a new way of building, typing, and choosing drumsticks. You can choose the length, balance point, taper, tip, and material to create the perfect stick for you using the Select Balance system. Be sure to check them out today at Promark.com. This session is also free thanks to Dream Symbols and Gong. And you know what's different about Dream is they keep it simple. Their goal is just to make the best sounding handmade symbols and gongs in the world, price them fairly, and let the instruments speak for themselves. So if you're tired of paying for the name on the symbol rather than the sound that you're getting, Check out dreamsymbols.com today. All righty. Now that we got that out of the way, I want to, I just want to express that the companies that are sponsoring this podcast are all really great people. And, and I'm just appreciative that they would find the value in this podcast to support it. So do me a favor and, and support those companies because they really care about getting great content and great information out to drumming and just really fostering drumming initiatives, which is something that is amazing. So please be sure to thank all of those people, because like I say in the ad, this is a hundred percent free because of them and, and it wouldn't be possible without them. So Speaking of content, let's get into this interview. This interview is with Chad Wackerman, and um, one, I'm blown away that that he wanted to do the podcast, but also found out that he's a listener of the podcast as well, which is just amazing to me. Uh, I've been a fan of Chad's for years. Uh, I mean, he's just, he's Chad Wackerman. What else do I have to say? And this interview is amazing. He talks about a lot of different things. We cover a lot of ground, and the 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 one thing that really sticks out in this interview is how he had to audition for Zappa. This is, it's like the craziest story and it's just an amazing story. And I got him to play on the podcast and everything. So I'm not going to ramble anymore. We're going to get into this with Chad Wackerman. I hope that you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed chatting with him. He's such a, a force in the industry. So without further ado, let's get into it with Chad Wackerman. Chad, what's going on? Thank you so much for doing this. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here, Nick. Thanks for inviting me. Sure, absolutely. I've uh, I've been a fan of your work for for many many years, and I know that the audience has as well. So you know, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Absolutely, it's great to have you. And I was thrilled when I when I emailed you and you said, "Oh yeah, I, I just I just talked to Don Lombardi about you, and I listened to your podcast, and I was I was taken aback." So thank you, uh, thank you for that for for listening and and uh, being tuned into what's going on, man. I appreciate that. Oh, it's a great show. I find out a lot of information about people that I'm not necessarily um, you know. Uh, close friends with and so right. a lot of drummers on the west coast i am but um, many of the east coast guys you know it's really interesting for me to hear what's in their head well that's uh it's great to have you listen man so we'll i'll try to i'll try to keep it going and i'll try to get some some more east coast guys to make sure i'm, I'm getting you in the know with those <laughs> guys uh so as a listener you 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 know that i like to get the backstory of of my guests and you have obviously a a storied career and a ton of backstory but just tell the audience a little bit about about who you are where you come from and and what you do well, I'm Chad Wackerman. I'm a, a drummer. I haven't done anything else in my life. <laughs> my father is a drummer and music teacher, and um, I have three brothers, and we're all professional musicians now. So it's, uh, we, you know, we grew up in an incredibly just musical family with parents that were completely open and completely supportive about being a musician. Um, although with, with that said, um, 
my dad was a music teacher, so it wasn't like we could just slough off. If we wanted to do this, we really had to, um, you know, put put the time in. And, and right. he was he was great because he set us up with some really amazing teachers. Um, a couple the, the main two teachers that I studied with was Chuck Flores, and also Murray Spivak. And Chuck mm-hmm. happened to be a, a student of Murray's when he he was quite young. Anyway, uh, that's me. So when I was taking lessons from Murray, so my father was also. We'd drive up to, we're from Seal Beach, Long Beach area. Um, so we'd drive up an hour up into LA and, and take lessons with Murray. Um, my three younger brothers, I'm the oldest, and then Bob is a really amazing bass player and he's a producer. He produces music for theme parks, for the main theme parks, like the Disney, you know, all the Disney parks, Disney, oh, okay. Disneyland. Um, Universal Studios and all the parks they have in Japan and, and um, Europe as well. That's amazing. There's so, actually a guy who writes for Drummer's Resource that that works at Disney. He's a drummer, and uh, mm-hmm. so I guess he's either working with your brother or, or working on some of the stuff that your brother has created. Well, it's actually all the pre-recorded music. So if, if you walk ah, to the park, okay. all the it's, and it tends to be all the parade music, all the music you hear in trees, all the stage shows pre-recorded music so it's big big production and wow. I, I, play on, I play on that stuff it's usually synth based to start with and then they start replacing everything with live instruments so hmm. it's, it's usually big rock band big band strings choir the really big production stuff wow um bob used to play with alan holdsworth and you know many many great people he did a lot of sessions as a bass player he played with jeff Picaro a few times um uh so that's my brother bob then uh, the next down the line is, is John Wackerman. Uh, John started out as a mallet player, and now he's, he's a great drummer as well. He used to play with Lindsey Buckingham and Kazumi Watanabe. Um, now he works in Las Vegas. He's a musical director for the Terry Fader show at the Mirage Hotel. Awesome. And then my youngest bro- brother is um, Brooks Wackerman. And he he's, used to play with suicidal tendencies, um, he plays with Tenacious D, who's in Bad Religion for, I think, about 15 years, and he just changed bands. He's going to be the drummer in Avenged Sevenfold. Yeah, I saw that. I saw mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's pretty recent, too, right? That's very recent. Yeah, yeah. a couple weeks ago. Yeah. So those are my brothers. And, um, yeah, so I, I just was really, really fortunate to have an amazing father who was so open to all sorts of different types of music, uh, basically thought it was good or bad, and didn't really care stylistically so right when we were growing up we heard frank sinatra and, and all the big band stuff and Jimi hendrix and cream so i have to ask do you have th- three of your brothers are all professional musicians your father was a was a professional musician uh, he's actually still teaching he's still he's um he'll be 85 this month and he teaches uh jazz to middle school kids that's amazing and he's a great teacher and they his bands always kill every year he puts an amazing amount of time in. He spends his weekends, right. private teaches them. He gets pros to come in and do section rehearsals. He has an organization that fundraises and they get all original music or they get, you know, some of the top arrangers in LA write their charts and they work on them really hard all year. So That's great. That's so good to hear. Just especially with the, the current state of the, the music, uh, the music education system is, it's good to hear that, that it's, it's definitely alive and well uh, in certain places of the country at least well you know if it if it's in his case i mean he's kind of a local legend too and the 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 kids get so much out of it and the parents really understand the value of it so they really Mm -hmm. support his program even though he's teaching one class it's just a jazz band class in middle school but um he's got a separate band booster you know organization just take right to take care of all that that's that's great. Yeah, but it's incredibly it really valuable for for young kids. Sure, I, and there's you know how many studies have there been that that even if the musicians don't go on to be professional musicians, at least doesn't matter. Yeah, like learning in school, and they say how how that affects them in other aspects of their life in terms of grades and and uh-huh. uh, communicative skills and 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 how they interact with with other people and everything. It's really you know it's it's really yeah, whole- life lessons that you learn. Yeah, it, it, no, it absolutely is. And it, it gives you a pathway in mm-hmm. school because all of a sudden you have a group of friends. Right. You're all, you're all in the band together, you know, 20 right. other kids. So it's, 
yeah, it's, it's wonderful on, on really every level. Especially in middle school when it's, I think middle school <laughs> at some point is difficult for everyone. <laughs> sure it is. You know? <laughs> so what do you think it was that, or is, I should say, that, that really, and I don't want to say the secret to the success of your, of your family and playing, but, but it's not a coincidence that you and all of your brothers are professional musicians. So was it a certain approach or do you think that it was certain teachings or certain things that you studied or, or what do you, what do you equate it to? We all worked really hard, you know, but wait a minute, wait a minute. You have to work hard at this. No, absolutely. You got to put the work in. We, and we were, luckily dad really researched certain teachers to to take us to and um mm-hmm. the story with murray spivak was my father's favorite musician in the world was louis belson so mm-hmm. when i when i was a kid i guess about 12 or 13 he wrote to louis and and he asked him if by any chance he it was taking you know teaching privately and because my dad wanted to take lessons from him my dad's a drummer as well okay um and and he wanted his son meaning me take lessons and Louis Belson being Louis Belson, if you don't know, he was one of the most just sure. kindest human beings on the planet. Um, he wrote this quite long handwritten letter back just explaining that he had his big band. And at the time he was married to Pearl Bailey. He was her musical director. Didn't, didn't have time to private teach, but he recommended his teacher who was Murray Spivak. Wow. So, so we called up, dad called up Murray Spivak and Murray said, well, um, Sure, I'd be, be happy to teach you and your son, but I've got a waiting list. I have a, it's very systematic, his, his, his method, and um, his waiting list at the moment was uh, for, you know, six months. So he, Oh, wow. So he just said, if you want me to put you on the list, about six months' time, I'll give you a call, and we'll book in some lessons. So we, we did. And then that kind of, um, that really, I was just a kid then, but it completely changed my playing and my kind of outlook on music, too. Hmm. So now, are you the only one who studied with him? No, my father did, I did, uh, John did, and Brooks. We all did. And we also studied... I think we found the secret to success. (laughs) Well, the other thing, he was a very, very tough teacher. He wouldn't put up with... You you really had... He gave you quite a lot of material. He had lessons every two weeks because you needed that much time to work on the stuff to improve. Right. And, um, he was just very, he was very hardcore. You know, he, he gave you one chance. Like basically if you didn't practice, you kind of had to practice a minimum of two hours a day just to get, get it together for the next lesson. Right. So if you did less than that, he, you know, he would know you'd walk into the right. room and he was so had, had so many students. I was, was literally talking to Don Lombardi about this today. Uh, uh-huh. about an hour ago when he was saying that he's like, Oh, I have all these videos of him. And, and then we started sort of talking about him and Freddie Gruber and, and right. all of this different stuff. And, and, you know, he said, Freddie was kind of like, ah, if you want to practice, you practice for a minute or two. And if you don't, then you don't or whatever. But he said, you know, Mari Spivak was like, you know, it's gotta be two hours a day. And, and yeah, no, he used to say, look, if you're not, if when you came to him, he said, if you're not interested in improving your playing by 75% minimum, I'm not interested in having you. Wow. He, he, and he had this huge list of great, great drummers, you know, trying to get, he was primarily, um, he was a guy you would see to, to fix your hands. Mm-hmm. And, well, I was going to ask cause, because he, so, because he and Freddie were, I guess, teaching it around the same time. Well, Freddie would have been on the East Coast then. Uh, Murray right. was out in the West Coast at this time. So, I'm but but I mean, on. they were sort of like the same. They were they were sort of like the the hands guys, if I'm not mistaken, right? I guess so. Freddie's system, as far as I'm, I knew, Freddie and I talked to him a, a bit. I never took any lessons from him, but I know it was based on Buddy's, uh, very much Buddy Rich's, the way Buddy played right the breaking buddy, the, breaking down the way yeah, he played. had photos of buddy and it was very much buddy which this this was a different it, it's a different way you know a right, different system. right so can you what would a typical lesson be like with them uh we worked on the fundamentals you had to um if you're interested actually talking about drum channel i did a 30 episode master class series on murray's system awesome so it's well, right we, there i'll definitely so, link up to that in the in the show we'll notes t- so that people can check it out a little bit but if you want to delve in it's, it's all there i'm i'm 
being the teacher and Don Lombardi's being the student. That's awesome. So it's incredibly methodical. It's, I remember the first lesson I had, and I'm, I'm about 13 years old, I think. He, it took him about, I don't know, five, seven minutes or so to figure out exactly what I could do and what I couldn't do. <laughs> <laughs> he just, and he asked me to play single strokes. He asked me to play a double stroke roll. He asked me to play some flams, a closed roll, and I think a paradiddle. And were you like, were you nervous or were you sort of like, ah, I'll just go in and a do this? A little bit nervous, sure. Yeah, I'm yeah. Kid, and I'm, this is, you know, this legendary teacher. Right. Uh, he was also really, he was a, he had a brilliant mind. I mean, drumming was just one of his careers. Mm-hmm. He, he started a uh, very fascinating life that he had. He started, as far as I know, in, um, he used to be the traps drummer for RKO Radio. Really? Um, and then... When RKO, or maybe it was Paramount, I, I get the company sometimes mixed up, but when they went into movies, motion pictures, uh, went through the radio thing, he was having to do Foley stuff because the Traps drummer back then had, you know, he had a picture of him like a, you know, slick back hair and like a really fine suit and huge bass drum, Chinese tom-toms, uh, this was even like pre-hi-hat, he had one of these things you grasp with your left hand and it clamped two cymbals together. Oh, really? Then the rest of it was like gongs and timpani and mallets and then noisemakers, you know, like huh. lion roar and all, because he had to, for these radio plays and stuff, I guess he sure. had traps from back then. But he started inventing some of these um, just sound effects machines, kind of mechanical stuff. And when, when the movies, RKO, I guess it was, uh, when they, they hired him as a sound effects person, to move to LA, to Hollywood, and then being, you know, working in the sound effects for the movies. And the first movie he did was King Kong. Really? He's, he's the guy who does the, the, all the gorilla like sounds. Like all the gorilla sounds and everything? Yeah, he said he went to the zoo and he recorded the lions and detuned them, you know, with the tape. And apparently he was, then through that, I won't spend much time, on, a lot of time on this, but... Um, this is intriguing, though. So he's doing sound effects. Then I, he became the... In charge of the music department, I don't want, I want to say at Paramount, but I could be wrong. And, but then through that, he started getting in, really involved in sound recording. And he was a huge innovator in, in sound recording for film. So hmm. just a few of the big movies, that he, he recorded Hello, Dolly. He recorded The Sound of Music. Wow. He, he recorded 200 Motels, the Zappa movie. So, so I mean, he's done, he's done it all. Well, pretty interesting guy, and I, I remember reading years ago in Mix Magazine, it's an engineer's magazine, mm-hmm. um, that he was the first guy to sync up multiple three-track machines, because that's the, he said that's the, the, they didn't have 24-track machines back then, so right. he wanted re- to record the Sound of Music Orchestra with having separation, so you have strings on one track, you have horns in the, so apparently he, <laughs> he was able to somehow sync up 11 of these three-track machines. They used to use three track because it would be for dialogue. It would be in the, in the center, and then the music would be left and right for mm-hmm. the film. Uh, so pretty brilliant. So maybe like a thirty-three track recorder. Get or you know, but right. one would have to be the sync track. So ah, uh, right, right. Anyway, I don't, I'm not sure. How, I think he did it with a sixty hertz tone or something. Just pretty brilliant huh. character. That that sort of reminds me of the story, and I don't know if this is true or not, but when they when Pink Floyd recorded um, how they had the echo where it's like us, 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 and them, 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 that they didn't have delay and echo then. So they just had a bunch of tape machine, right? Yeah. A bunch of tape machines around the room and sort of had mathematicians come in and figure out. And then, so every time the tape went through each player, it would play us, us, <laughs> us, us, and them, 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 them. And I don't know if that's true or not. I, I remember reading that somewhere or, or hearing that, but it just sort of reminded me of, of that of that situation of how, how much we tape take. Echo is a, a, it's a great sound. You know, your echoplex is kind of based as a tape loop. Right. You know, but I've even on some of my records for guitar delay, I've used um, like an old Revox machine and mm-hmm. just, you can VSO the thing. So it's right. so down. But it's a very warm sounding echo. Yeah. I just, I love tape. I can, I could see the tape machine in your, in the corner. Actually, my mm. record, I, cu- I recorded the whole thing on, on tape. So 
I have a, I have a, I'm younger, but I have a strong appreciation for, for tape and analog. I just think it sounds so much better than, than anything else. So, well, that's interesting too, because, you know, I found that people play, you, you play differently. If you know that you like, for example, if you're just recording to two tracks, mm-hmm. people are going to go really go in for a performance. Yeah. Start, because there's you know, no, ah, we'll just fix it in post. Yeah. It's very difficult to, to fix anything on yeah. With, with analog tape, you can, and we used to punch, even with Zappa, we, we would punch in, you know, but it's yeah, hit or like miss. Slight Sometimes cut like, and tape well, and, ta- yeah, and all that. Or the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. That's amazing. So for people who are listening that, that are maybe a little bit younger that don't understand, like you had, you had to take a reel to reel tape machine. And if there was a section that you needed to cut out, you literally had to cut it out, out of mm-hmm. the tape and put a so new piece. Blade and, and you would try and try that section again they would splice it together yep and they would just punch in there and man amazing amazing how times have changed Mm -hmm. uh that's that's actually a really good segue about talking about zappa because there's and i talk about this a lot in the podcast that there's a long road between you know you being 13 14 15 years old and and sort of figuring all this stuff out to playing with frank zappa you know, or, or things like that. So walk us down that road a little bit and sort of, and sort of tell me a little bit about the timeline and, and how these bigger, more, uh, uh, elusive gigs started to come up for you. Well, okay. Well, one of the, a few key things happened when I was pretty young. Um, I, I went to some summer camps, some, some summer jazz camps. Um, there was a big band leader named Stan Kenton, who was quite mm-hmm. famous at the time. And he always had great, really great bands of very you, you totally different concept than a typical big band but one of the one of the drummers at this um you know summer jazz camp you would spend a week or two weeks there and his 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 band were the teachers mm-hmm. so um one of the years i went uh greg fields was there carlos carlos vega and peter erskine was the drummer in the band i think peter was 18 oh wow and, so I was probably thir- thir- again like thirteen or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was pretty intensive and really opened up my eyes a lot. Um, one year his band couldn't didn't do it, and it was in Redlands, California. So uh, uh, Don Ellis's band did the summer camp, and if you don't, probably a lot of people don't know who Don Ellis was. He was a also a he was a pretty modern composer. He composed the French Connection movie. Uh, Ralph Humphrey was one of the drummers in his mm-hmm. band. Um, he was a trumpet player, had a quarter tone trumpet with a fourth valve, but he was writing this big band music, but it was also East Indian influenced. And he had a Bulgarian piano player in the band, Milcho Levia. So he would write this kind of Bulgarian music for big band. Huh. And it was a real fusion, but I really got uh, deeply into odd times by studying with, with Ralph a little bit there and, and all the, all the stuff that this band was doing. Hmm. So, and they were able to explain it in a very simplistic way. So it was, it was easy for me. And so later on when I got the, you know, got called to audition for Zappa, I, I was really comfortable with on time signatures. Sure. Sure. So normally, how does, how does that call? So much, you know, what's that? Normally you wouldn't be so much. You might play in seven and that might be it. You know, right. As as, I, I think people get a little, afraid of of odd time just because i don't think that it's explained very well and so would you saying they made it very easy to understand and and sure. you know easy to digest it i think people start to get a little weirded out about it because it's it's not i, I i've ne- i've seen a few people who explain it really well but but by and large it's it's really hard and scary when you first start to learn about it. I remember learning about odd times and I was like, I don't, this doesn't even make any sense to me. And then once I figured it out, I said, Oh man, this is actually it's really simple. It's not yeah. that hard. No, it's, it's, it's really, really, really easy. If you understand a three, you understand a two, right? That's it. They're combinations of those. Um, it's, it's almost like the way I think of rhythms anyway, or um, they're almost like words. You know, mm-hmm. they're words. Once you know the word, you can put it anywhere. So right. once you have it in your hand, um, for my students, I teach them a, a three pattern with a sticking, a two pattern with a sticking. 
and then they can play every time signature. Hmm. That's interesting. If you, if you, everything's modular at that point. Right. So, for example, if you're playing in 5-8 and it's 3 plus 2, I might have them play right, right, left for the 3 and right, left for the 2. The right hand's on the hi-hat. So the hat, hat, snare, then hat, snare. All the one counts is the, or with the kick. Mm-hmm. So if you play that for three or four minutes, you're going to be able to like actually stop counting it because it's so repetitious. You can hear da 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 one two three four five. Sounds weird at the beginning, mm-hmm. but once you get an idea of just what the three sounds like da da da, that can be placed anywhere. So it's it, right. I really like to make music as easy as possible, mm-hmm. and like the whole technique with with Murray's system was all to do with relaxation and the faster you play, the more relaxed you are. And it just broke open this fear of chops and rudiments. And then with odd times, it just really simplifies everything. And then, then you can really mess with it if you want, but it comes down to really basic, basic fundamentals that are, you can teach a very, very, very young person. There's a few things that you mentioned that that all seem to have this this mystery around them uh, with odd times, with chops, with with you know musicality, with and and being fearful of of all these things. That once you get inside them, you say, "Oh, they're okay. They're not that 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 bad." But one of the main things that I always see, and I'm sure that you do, is everybody else does that. As people get faster, they get tenser, and they, you know, they feel like yeah. They, see, they, I was I was taught to do the opposite with with Murray. He wouldn't let right. you play tense, so everything was done with a metronome. Mm-hmm. So if, if at well, you know 120 you started to tighten up, then you weren't allowed to play 100, 120 for this exercise. You had to go back to 115 hmm. and then stay relaxed. And once you work on that feel of relaxation over time. It's like your fastest, relaxed tempo gets quicker and quicker and quicker, but you never tense up. Right, right. Which is a very unusual way to do it, but I really believe in it. Oh, I, I'm right there with you. I think once once you really start to feel that that relaxation in your hands, and, and I mean, I, I think I still have work to do on it, and I think everybody does for, well, mostly everybody. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, no, it's a lifelong process. I remember reading a, a, um, it was a really long article, I think the Smithsonian did it on Louis Belson, and, they said, and he, was quite, he was in his 80s at that time. They said, well, what are you working on? He said, I'm working on my rudiments. Yeah. <laughs> I <was> like, okay. <laughs> I don't think it stops, you know, because yeah. look, what you do and what Murray taught me, you can play everything on the, on the drums with wrist strokes, with rebound, Flam and a closed roll. Mm-hmm. That's it. You can right. do it. you can play everything with those four little elements. And most rock drummers don't even use a closed roll, so they're only using three things. Right. It's amazing because there's. You have to make that connection of okay, these are you know, they're combinations of singles and doubles, and they're combinations mm-hmm. of you know rebound strokes and things like that. And <laughs> I feel like once once the speed comes into play, all that stuff just sort of goes out the window, and people just say, "I just got to get the, I got to get this out of you know any way that I can, whether it's an arm stroke or you know, at, even at fast speeds, it's like whatever I got to do to get this out." And their necks tightening up, and they're you know, I'm sure that you see it a lot too. I see it, and I, I see it in some of my students. But when then we, you know, bring it back to um, a, a pace that is more in reality, you know. Right. So, what's your advice for people that to one? How do you? What if I'm playing and you say no, you're tense, and I say, well, I feel, I feel relaxed, but you can tell that I'm not. And and so, what do you say to somebody that that has sort of this this tense playing? Uh, what are some things that you would teach them to how to relax as they're playing? Well, I, I usually to like show them directly, even the way they hold the the, the grip, you know. Mm-hmm. That, and you know, again, you can see this on drum channel, but Murray's grip is a three-point grip. It's a thumb. The second, you know, if your index finger I'm counting is one, the, the next finger I'm counting is two. So your um, fulcrum is actually cradled in the second finger in the first joint, like like this. It's like a mm-hmm. like a seesaw, right? The center point of that is your fulcrum. 
it's not the index finger. It's this, and then the index finger is just loosely wrapped around as a guide, and then there's a... a Murray always had us keep an opening between the index finger and the thumb. Like, like the, I can show you on the screen here like that. I'm taking screenshots of it, so <laughs> okay. I'll post this in the, uh, in the show it's notes. On drum, right? It's all on drum channel, and you can see it much, much better that way. But it creates a, a, a really resonant sound, mm-hmm. a really big sound. And I know in recording, if I'm tight, my, I can make my tom sound staccato by closing up that right. rip, or I can get them to sound more like timpani, like really big, long notes by having the more relaxed grip. So, mm. And it makes everything easier. You can play rebounds easier. So if you can play your rebounds by, you know, by getting one wrist stroke and then a bounce after it, that means if you just play your single strokes at one tempo and you loosen up your grip so you can get bounces, you get double time. Mm-hmm. But your hands are playing half the speed. So right. that's kind of a lot of the concept of Murray's thing. It's that. Then also he's really big on the up and down stroke and not using muscle, but using other devices which create volume. Right. So, um, but again, that's all on drum channel. I don't, I don't want to get too deeply in this, but it's a really efficient way to play. And the, the other really beautiful thing that he, he would do, he would teach you one rudiment. So you're playing this one rudiment, and as you're playing it, he would say something like, okay, now just loosen up your right hand a little bit. Get, yeah, get more, one more rebound from that throw, you know. Right. Playing that, and he says, oh yeah, that's called this rudiment. <laughs> then he alters something in your left hand. Okay, now just get rid. Make one little modification. Oh yeah, now you're doing this other rudiment. Right. So and you're like, oh, as, hard. it's as, the same. As you're playing, he's got a brilliant system, and it's I've never seen anybody else come up with something like that because all the rudiments are based on body motion. Mm-hmm. So he would take the similar body motion, and he wouldn't tell us this. He, a lot of stuff he wouldn't tell us. He would just let you figure it out. Right. He had a whole system of roll strokes, for example. He put in odd times, and he put in time signatures of an eighth note value, but he put the click in half time. So as you're practicing a five-stroke roll, you're playing it in three, eight, one and two and three, one and two and three, but it's over a two-four click. One, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. So you're doing this for two minutes each way. So you don't know it, but you're hearing a phrase of, of three-eight over two-four, Wow. And with any kind of polyrhythm or ryth- any new rhythm, you know, you just have to kind of repeat it, usually count it out first and, and then play it enough where it just becomes mm-hmm. like another rhythm word in your big musical vocabulary. So when you're on stage and playing, it just comes out. So you don't have to force it. So it's he amazing. had all those, these roll strokes and they would just get longer instead of f- fixing more notes into a one pulse. He just made the time signatures longer and longer and longer and longer but he superimposed a 2-4 click over everything. <laughs> so you're playing a 3-8, three, three then 4-8, then 5-8, then 6-8, and 7-8, and 8-8. Eight, wow. Individually for two minutes each time over the 2-4. So you're memorizing all these elongated phrases, and you don't know it. Huh. That's really... Is all this in the drum channel stuff? Yeah. Because uh, I, I want to check it out. I, I mean, I wanted to, but now I, I really do. Uh, I'm going to... Yeah, and- it's great, and I'll, like I said, I'll link to that in the in the show notes so that everybody can can check it and out again, and learn you know, about that. When I when I got the gig with Frank Zappa, we were doing really long rehearsals. We were playing eight hour rehearsals, started five days a week for the first couple months, and then the last month of rehearsal, we did six days a week. That's a lot. That's and it's all full on, you know, arena volume. Right, and he was like playing. really demanding, wasn't he? He wanted his music to be played right, and he, he right. went to such effort to to compose this stuff. And even the like, even if you saw his, he had he had a couple of brilliant copyists. You know, this is way before computer charts. Mm-hmm. The way they were copied were they were like works of art. It was really amazing to look at these pieces because you could figure out by the way the. The, the copyist had written these notes. You could figure out what's really important and what wasn't so important. Just really? by the way it, it huh. just graphically, by the way it looked, you know. Right, right, right. He wrote a lot of music and it, it was really great music. And he knew what it was supposed to sound like. So if you kept up, there was no problem. Right. How, did, that, how did you get that gig? It was an op- open audition. It was Cattle Call. Really? A friend, a friend of mine I used to do 
casuals with, you know, like wedding receptions and parties. Um, a great bass player named Kevin Brandon, and Kevin went on to play with Aretha Franklin, and he's, he's a really great bass player. He's also a good jazz upright player. He auditioned one day with a friend of his, and he didn't get the gig, and his friend didn't get the gig. And so he called me up the next day, and he said, hey, Frank's, Frank Zappa's holding auditions, open auditions. Here's his phone number. So I just, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know Frank. I didn't, right. I just, I, I, in fact, at first I wasn't even going to call him. I thought, what's the point? I don't know his tunes. Like a lot of the drummers knew whole entire albums of. Right, all right. Were you a Frank Zappa fan at the time or? I had a couple records. I think I had Tinseltown Rebellion because Vinnie Colliuta had moved to town recently mm-hmm. and everybody was obviously raving about him. Um, and my buddy of mine had played me the black page once. So no, I didn't know the, mm-hmm. I didn't know the stuff. So, so how I, I sort of, I would have walked down this a little bit about, so you call, you call, get the gig or get the uh, audition oh, with Frank Zappa. It's pretty funny. I call him and, and, and so, um, I get Wait, my you call him or like his manager yeah, I, or something? No, I'm, I'm calling this phone number that I, that Kevin Brandon gave me <laughs> right. and I call and he answers the phone. I'm, I'm not <laughs> expecting him to answer the phone. I'm thinking of some secretary or somebody. But, right. Right. And he has, you know, that great low voice low. And, um, I said, oh, well, Mr. Zappa, I'm a, I'm a drummer in LA and my name is Chad Wackerman and blah, blah, blah. And I said, I've heard you holding auditions and, um, I wanted to, to know if, if you found anybody yet. And he just said, no, nobody can cut it. <laughs> huh. said, okay. I said, well, I'd love to give, give it a shot if I could come up and audition. And he just said, well, do you read? First question, you know, do you read? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, I, I do read. He said, well, are, are you a good reader? Or are you a phenomenal reader? <laughs> so, and I just laughed. I said, what do you say to Frank Zappa? Because I, I hadn't seen, and I said, well, right. look, I had experience percussion ensembles and symphonic stuff i've done i've done a lot of big band reading i do some sessions in town a little bit and um i know your your notations your, your music notations um reputation and um i just i'd just love to give it a shot he said okay well you know can you can you come up here's my address can you be here in an hour <laughs> you're <laughs> so, like i'm in la i can't be anywhere in an hour <laughs> yeah. No, but he, I couldn't be there now. So right. I just kind of laughed and said, sure. And I had no expectation of, I thought, I mean, you know, at first I wasn't even going to call him. A buddy of mine said, well, you should just call him. And look, if you can get on an audition, it'll be a, you'll get a funny story out of it. Right. You know, not, not, don't think that you're going to get the gig. Just take that pressure right off. Just go, you might meet a couple of musicians. And sure enough, uh, he had kind of the nucleus of that band from 81 band. So it was, uh, well, anyway, so I, I, I go up to the house and ring the bell. There's these gates and it's at the top of um, Hollywood Hills area. Um, and I get buzzed in and it's kind of chaos. There's like uh, one of his daughters was very, very young and she was having a birthday party. So like little kids in fairy outfits all over the place and <laughs> moms with cakes. And so I'm, I'm asking what the studio door is and he had home, it's a great home studio, well, like a commercial studio, but somebody pointed to me door. So I knock on the door and um, this guy answers the door and he's got really long blue hair and like a tight leopard skin shirt and kind of rock and roll jewelry, you know, really tight leather pants. And he's going, I'm going, oh, I'm here for the drum auditions. And I said, oh, come on. I'm, I'm Steve Vai. I'm the guitar player in the band. Nice. <laughs> and he wasn't famous. He was just. He was just some guy in a leopard skin shirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, but he was a nice, he was nice and he introduced me to Ed Mann and, and, um, Tommy Mars and, and Frank. So Frank said, well, but we've got a couple other guys here before you. So running a little late, sorry, but so why don't you just, you know, meet Mark Pinsky and Bob Stone, the recording engineers and, and uh, just hang out with them. You can hear the other drum auditions in the booth. So I did. And then it was my turn and sure enough, the, the, the charts were, were first. Right, you, know, you had to, to play the music first, and so, so you just had to sit and just sight read all this stuff. Yeah, but it, you can't really sight read it. Not right. not to the detail that that, that it is. It, it's like a pianist having to figure out fingerings before you can actually play it. And be, mm-hmm. because he he wrote for everything, he wrote for kick, snare, five toms, and he at the point he liked a timpani pedal roto tom, um, then three high rotos, and then castanets and cowbell, ride cymbal, two crashes, and a china cymbal, and that was all notated in classical 
style with, you know, wow. odd groupings, odd time signatures, polyrhythms nested in other polyrhythms, and with extreme dynamic changes within, within that. So, I mean, you needed to spend some time with it. It right. wasn't a... But, so I just figured, well, the thing I noticed about the two guys before me, they got lost really quickly, and so they had really quick auditions. So you uh, got lost, and that was it. And I thought, well, I'm not going to get lost. I'm going to. If I, I'm, I thought I'm just going to keep my place, so I end with the band, right? And that that seemed to <laughs> that work. Okay. But there were some odd groupings that I that there were some five eight stuff and some quintuplets, and I played those real strong just to show them I can do this mm-hmm. stuff. Right. And I played kind of played time through the really bizarre rhythms that I couldn't sight read, you know. Mm-hmm. But then I made made other big hits with the band and stuff so i got the got through each piece from beginning to end and i think that helped sure i guess you know he figures if you can if you can play that well just by seeing this you know give him some time and you can play all this stuff well so did he tell you at the audition that you got the gig or did they call you later ended up being a three-day audition oh really it was the first day then um well then then he had me play a bunch of odd time stuff to start start out with and then every style he could think of, you know, including like bebop and weather report kind of style with like a real super fast jazz thing with a halftime backbeat. Um, he wanted to hear a Delta groove, like New Orleans rock, real swampy, you know, uh, slow, really, really slow heavy metal. Hmm. Just like count it off like one, two, three, you know, he wanted to see if you can keep the time. Wow. Like that with space and and heavy, um, and then there was all sorts of shuffles and reggae, and then then ska and seven, and he'd mix it all up. So, um, and then at the end of the day, he put his guitar on and um, picked a bass player, and we just basically jammed. He just wanted to see how <laughs> how you're going to interact. Sure, just jamming, and um, that's the point where I, I just got goosebumps because I remember I was. The first rock concert I, I saw was one of Jimi Hendrix's last rock concerts. Mm-hmm. I was a little kid, but um, my neighbor was a guitar player, and for his birthday, his parents got his tickets to see Jimi Hendrix, and it completely transported me back to that that time. I was like, "Oh, I, this is great!" Because yeah. it's long improvisations. It's real kind of slinky, and it's uh, you know full full volume. It was right. exciting. It was long solos, really inventive, really interesting. And you're playing with Frank Zappa. And I'm playing with Frank. So I can't believe it. <laughs> so it was goosebumps, and I thought, well, hey, if if this is it, I've I've just had an amazing day. Right. So a- after all that, he said, well, look, I think you got potential to do the gig, but there's a couple guys flying out from Europe and New York on their own nickel the next two days, and I promise the band I'll close it off. So after that, um, I'll make a decision. But he said, look, if you come back, how about this? Why don't you bring your own drums? Because he had a really trashy makeshift drum set at his. Right. right didn't make any sense um like a flat ride cymbal piccolo snare and some <laughs> Ludwig concert toms you know it's right. like all wrong um so the next day i brought brought up got there early brought in my kit and um he said if i hear, hear anybody else i think has potential to do it i want to ab you and i said well what do you mean he said well when i want to hear the, the, the other drummer i think might be okay then i want to hear you play right after him so i can directly compare one like each song and wow okay sure I just laughed. Why not? Um, so after the third day, uh, I went home and then he, they gave me a call and he said, look, I've had it, which I, su- I was surprised about this. He said, I just had a band, a meeting with the band and we've decided to offer you the gig. Here's the deal. We're going to rehearse for three months. It's going to be eight hours a day, you know, and then I bought a recording truck recently from the Beach Boys. So we're going to record every show, going to make albums out of those shows. You know, there'll be probably other recording after the tour. And, um, you know, this is the rehearsal rate. Here's the the tour rate. And do you want to do it? And I said, I just left. I said, yeah, I want to do it. Sure. <laughs> of course I do. I'm like 21 years old when, you know, playing, bumming around L.A. Um, so anyway, yeah, so I, I did. And he said, well, show up to my house, you know, in the morning. I've got a stack of music. You better start memorizing. We start rehearsing in two or three weeks. I forgot what it was. And, um, and he gave me like 10 albums and literally a stack of music. And I just started shedding. And then it was like, then it was like trying to keep the gig. Right. Cause I heard other guys had gotten the gig previously, but they couldn't keep it, you know? So you had to do all this 
rehearsing, then you'd have to, then you would have to tape every day rehearsals because it would change up arrangements every, every time, hmm. constantly changing. So you had to get the last version of what it was locked in and stuff. And you couldn't read on the gig because it was all rock and roll lighting. Right, right, right. And he would change stuff up and stylistically on stage. So, so it was just amazing to, to witness and, and kind of be in that world and see how he wrote music. And, and how, long did you, how long did you do that gig? Seven years. Seven years. And recorded something, what was it, like 26? Yeah, 26, 27 records. Again, a lot of them are live from the, right. the tours, but right. a lot of them weren't, too. You know, we did a lot of, did a lot of um, drum overdub or um, some couple tracks with a band but mostly it was a separate you know, separately drum overdub right 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 and what do you think was the most or the hardest part of of that entire that gig or that you know that stretch of seven years playing with them keeping the gig uh no i mean after a while you kind of got used like with any composer you kind of got used to the stylistically the way they wrote and it got easier and easier because i more understood what he needed mm-hmm. to um I don't know. It was just a wild ride. It was just fantastic. It was just amazing to witness the stuff that he could pull off. And he was so smart and coming up with this great ideas all the, all the time. You know, it was just, it was just fantastic to be there. Do you, do you, do you think that the fact that he was so anal about every single thing, did it, did it take any of the life out of it? Or was it just like, I just want this to be really, really, really good. Well, no, I should probably describe it in a different way. That's so there's a classical music part. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's a very, it's, has to be played. Here's the, way, the page. Right. This stuff has to be played. But often on the tunes, that would be a, a middle section of a rock tune. So you would learn by rote the, you know, the regular rock format. Mm-hmm. Intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, whatever it is. And then you'd have this cla- super hard classical section in the middle. And then I would go back to rock and roll mm-hmm. towards the end. Now, the rock and roll stuff could have odd times in it and all sorts of polyrhythms too, but... Um, and then there were lots of solos as, as well. He was really inventive on stage, and the guitar solos would, would be quite long. If he gave you a, a solo, it wasn't just like 16 bars or 32 bars. You know, people would like walk off the stage. It was like, <laughs> it was like a gonna, marathon. <laughs> you're going to be there for a while, so you better be patient. You better come up with something. Right. Because, you know, you're just, okay, you got it. And, so was that stuff off the cuff, or did you know it was yeah. coming? No, no, it was all, always off the cuff. I didn't really... Oh. I, and you, and you don't know how long it's going to last? Or... No, and even, you know, because I, I had a lot electronic pads and stuff, and um, at one point, he had a Sinclair system, which, <laughs> this was fantastic. Uh, Bobby Martin could trigger it from, from one of his keyboards. I could trigger it from, like, an Octopad at the time. Ed Mann could trigger it from his Malik, uh, you know, controller. And so you'd be soloing along, and all of a sudden, Frank would give you a certain signal and point you to, which would mean that he's pulled up some kind of patch on the Sinclair that you don't know what it is. But you're now control, you've got now notes from the Sinclair, and it could be a choir, it could be a horn section, it could be, a, it could be trigger a whole string quartet composition. You don't know. <laughs> it's just, there you go, you're controlling it. So I like it. I like you know, it. So you, you just had to you learn to, to trust that everything is going to be just fine and get really get rid of your nerves. He was completely confident on stage. I remember the first gig, I was a nervous wreck. I was thinking, man, I I'm can't sure. it, was like, it was in a gymnasium in Santa Barbara, I think at the university and incredibly loud. It couldn't even, we couldn't talk to each other. The, just, the audience was so loud, but he came on stage. Absolutely cool. Not a worry you know, not a panicked right. kind of leader that we've all worked for before, but a guy who just walks on stage with complete confidence. And just owns it. Owns it and that gave that gave me confidence. Sure. You know, so makes sense. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I was lucky definitely lucky to be there. I, I like I I'm still jonesing about the uh the the synth pad thing. This <laughs> I think I want to. I want to do that in a band. Just say, "Hey, man, you you, you have control of this thing. You're not, you don't know what it's going to do." What I would do, I just hit one pad once and see what happens. <laughs> right. Okay. Oh, they're church bells. Okay. <laughs> it's hilarious. 
so you have this you know you you do this stretch with with him and and from there you've done so many things i mean i could we could sit here and read through your entire bio of, of your of your storied career but for anybody interested they should just go to your site and read it all i mean it's it's amazing the things that you've done and accomplished thank you so what are what are some of the things that that you've recently worked on and and things that you're currently working on as well um, well, my last CD I'm really proud of uh, that has Alan Holdsworth on it and Jimmy Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, Alan, of course, on guitar. Jimmy Johnson, amazing bass player. And Jim Cox, who's a brilliant keyboard player, B3 player. Um, half, of the, half of the record's improvised and the other half is composed. And it's, um, it's very intertwined. So some of the compositions are... Many people have told me it's... You know, they'll refer to a, a improv tune and they think it, it's composed, but it actually isn't. It's just these guys are such great improvisers that when they improvise, it sounds, it, sounds, like it. it sounds like completely fleshed out composition, you know. Awesome. Which is, you know, uh, I recently did a, a couple of weeks ago, I went to Percussive Arts uh, International Convention. Mm-hmm. PASIC? PASIC, yeah. And I did a, a, they want you to do a topic for a clinic, so I'm like, my topic was the um, connection between improvisation and, and composition. Because hmm. basically you can use the same compositional devices when you improvise. You're just doing it spontaneously. Sure. Can can you talk about that a little bit? Well, sure. I mean, you have a, for drummers, you know, it's we don't have to worry about key signatures, so that's quite nice. But um, if you look at the more melodic drummers in history, like guys like Max Roach, mm-hmm. um, more modern drummers would be Terry Bozio, right? That they, they play tunes, they play complete compositions. Right. Um, they usually start off with something pretty simple, like and, and with some of my students who get stuck and don't know what to do when they solo or, or want to have a different concept, I'll tell them to think of their toms as as like keyboard notes, you know. And then mm-hmm. think if you're if you're writing a melody, you usually you either just just start improvising on the piano or guitar or whatever, uh, but usually start pretty simple. And you'll um, one easy way is to come up with a two or three note melodic cell. So meaning uh, just an, an order of pitches. Right. So you can have like if you have three toms, it could be high, medium, low. Mm-hmm. So that's one direction you can do: low, medium, high. You could do medium, high, low, medium, low, high, whatever you want. But then I would use that. Think of it as a modular melodic cell and doesn't have to be in a rhythm but if you if you're going to go you know medium high then low do that and then repeat it mm-hmm. often like melodies do they'll they'll come up with little bits bits of repeat it's, it's right. quite easy to do um from there if you have another time you could take that same melodic cell and you could make your middle note down one inversion so right. say so if you had mm-hmm. and if down one inversion beat so forth um, I was hoping it. you were going to play those drums behind <laughs> you a little bit um, I'm at my studio that's, you probably can't see but, um, it just gives you a, a kind of a beginning uh, think real simple and think, think melodically if you, if you just mess with that You'll come up with all sorts of things. And you can think of it almost like a conversation, right? Mm-hmm. There's one melodic idea. It's like somebody walks in the room and says, makes a comment. Somebody else might agree with them. You know, you can do stuff like uh, make one tom a feature, like a soloist. Mm-hmm. Instead of the whole kit, you can actually play some ostinato or something, but actually think of like your floor tom. This is a, this is like a trumpet solo or this is a djembe solo. Right. Don't right. play the rest of the kit. This is going to be a feature right here. And your, your ears kind of get used to that sonic sound. Then if you go to another tom on the kit or a, or a snare drum, something with opposite color, it's like another person playing. Right. Then you can have this conversation between the two voices, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Call and response things and sure. all that. And, yeah. and then all the emotional attachments to it. You can have, uh, you know, two, if you're thinking of like the floor tom and, and and maybe the snared with snares off or something is two different voices or two different people, um, each with their separate things to say. They can agree. They can play stuff in unison. They can absolutely argue. 
Mm-hmm. You can play that way, and it's it's a really kind of interesting way to 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 jump into soloing and kind of more more melodic stuff. Yeah. Okay. So, would you want to would would you be willing to play like a little three note uh, uh, sort of exp- not an explanation but an example of how you could sort of take a three note theme and and build it up a little bit? Sure. So, if I don't attach it to a rhythm, um, so that's what I'm just personally calling a melodic cell. Um, the opposite of that would be a rhythmic cell, mm-hmm. which would be a fixed rhythm. Say if it's two sixteenth notes and eighth, or two eighth notes and a and da da da. Right. That it's almost like a sample and a key. So every time I say, if I play a, uh, and I, I like to, to combine sounds. So maybe if I used a floor tom in a, in a hi-hat, mm-hmm. it's almost like every time I play the floor tom, I'm just going to play that rhythm. I got it. It's just kind of open solo kind of stuff, but I could start. Um, so I'll, I'll just do high, medium, low for simplicity. Okay. okay. like a little starting right, point right. And, um, rather than thinking beat or, or thinking a traditional snare drum bass drum bass solo mm-hmm. you know, like more 40s and 50s stuff, it, it just gets you more thinking a little bit more melodic, melodic and then from that point you can also s- start to copy stuff that your guitar player is playing or your piano player is playing on the kit they all mm-hmm. play rhythm and they all play certain scale either up and down or, or all mixed up right and that could be really fun and that's like a whole world of of uh, music that you can play on the drums is no one's gonna know where you got it right. <laughs> you <know? laughs> well one of the things that i that was interesting that you said was you know taking one note or taking two notes or three notes because if you sit down behind a piano when you're writing a melody, like you said, it's not you don't sit or sit down and go. You know, you you play one note and then you play another note and then another and sort of work it out. But when you sit behind the drums, everybody wants to just let me try this thing as fast as I can possibly play it, and let, instead of letting melodies and sounds develop over over time, you know. Yeah, you know, I was watching one of the, the drum channel um, master classes, Peter Erskine, mm-hmm. talking about the jazz ride symbol and it, it went pretty early on he describes it hold the stick and the symbol and he says now let's just start with long tones yeah and who says that on the drum let's right. start with long tones it's like a <laughs> trumpet player or a voice yep okay that's right you have long tones in the drum set you have symbols you have mm-hmm. toms that can ring out and if if you if you think more like a composer Composers go, okay, what, what, is that, what is that sound? What's that sound like? Okay, if I arrange things so I can feature this particular sound, which has a long tone, you know, you can hit mm-hmm. a cymbal without hitting a bass drum. Right, right. Um, it's, you know, it, it's just... I, I have, almost we think have, we're we at a disav- What's that? We have more than attack. Right. We have, there's duration on a drum kit. And mm-hmm. if, if you ignore it, you tend to play really busy. Right, because you're not hearing the duration. But if you if you listen to drummers like Jim Keltner or Steve Gadd, or Peter Erskine, or uh, all these great guys who who are knows how to play in a studio and how know how to play with song, how, with singers, they really use use sustain. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, I always would say, okay, I'll just clap, and I'll say, okay, was that an eighth note or a quarter note or a, a half note? And it's like, mm-hmm. why well, I, I don't. I don't know. It's just, and that's a lot of people play drums that way where you hit the snare. Okay. What was that? Was that a quarter note or a half note? But if you associate the value to it, you know, and you have short notes and long notes and, and, you know, the sustain and, and the playing things staccato and legato, then now you start to develop a, a song. Now you start to develop melody. Now you start, now it sounds like music rather than tick, 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 you know, yeah, I think so. not all boxy and, and, 
unmusical. Yeah. So, and it would, it, and the other thing is fine to do too. It's just there's there's different there's different options, you know. Right. Right. I, I tend to like to to play this way, and I feel like I can I can really grab things from the other musicians that I'm working with, mm-hmm. and I can be a little bit more connected in their world, which which helps. Sure. That. That makes total sense. Um, I got a, I have a couple other questions. I I, I want to be cognizant of your time because I know we're we've been on the on the phone here for a little while. Sure. Um, so a few things. One, you do you teach privately, and then you also teach over Skype as well. I do. Right? Uh-huh. So if people yeah. want to study with you, which I strongly suggest, uh, what's they the best way to do that? They can just email me. It's cwclinics at yahoo.com. Okay. Email comes straight to me. Okay. And I'm, I'm staying home at the moment. I'm, I'm teaching quite a bit. So awesome. And I yeah. will, I'll make sure that I, that I link to, uh, link to your site and everything so that people right. can get in touch with you. Also, yeah, I want to talk. What's that? Oh, it's on the, the that email is on the site, of course, as well for under lessons. Okay. So I will be sure to link to that. And I also want to talk about, you just had them in your hand, the, the brushes that, where'd they go? Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're right here. Um, yeah, I've, I've been with Innovative Percussion for mm-hmm. the last few years, um, mostly because I, I, I had some design ideas, and I, I needed to be with a company that was willing to, to work with me. Right. <laughs> so um, they came out with a really beautiful signature stick, which is based on a 5B. It has a, a, a rounder tip, so it's prettier on the cymbal, but um, it's a... The wood is heavier, and again, it goes along with the Murray Spivak system, getting the sticks to really do a lot of the bouncing for you. With mm-hmm. little heavier sticks, all of that's easier. Are they hickory? Um, they are hickory. They're, they're from the center of the tree, so it's a little bit denser. Than I got you. This, so that's why they're a bit heavier. Um, taking the same um, shaft of that, that drumstick and hollowed it out for a brush, mm. so it's got a wood wood handle, which means you can... You can do a cross stick with it. Right. Um, it's just a medium gauge wire brush. So. But then on the other ends, I, I've put um, this kind of, uh, this, this uh, it's not fabric, but it's, it's like a mallet end. So you can, you can do suspense oh, cool. on your brush. And then I put a nylon tip drumstick tip at the end of the pull rod. Hmm. So you can play the cymbals with it or whatever else. Yeah, you can go like from it. stick sound to cross stick to brushes to mallets all in your hands. Nice. Nice. And they're innovative percussion? Innovative percussion. They're on their web- website. You can get them. Awesome. You know. And uh, again, all the stuff that we're, that we're talking about will be linked up to, uh, to your, the show notes for the interview so people can check that out. Yeah. So I, I do a fair amount of session work and... Um, you know, with the younger, with the older rangers, they, they, they know better. But the younger rangers, they're so, they mock up their arrangements with, with samples and loops and things. So often they have, like, suspended cymbal rolls going straight into a brush groove. Right. <laughs> it's not physically possible. Like, <laughs> well, can we give it to the percussionists? Oh, no, I've got them playing mallets and timpani, and I've got them really busy. All right. Well, so I've, I've thought, no, I need something I can just have in my hands i can play sticks you know i can get in, instantly go to brush instantly go to suspended symbol and makes it makes total sense they work well yeah <laughs> so it solved a lot of a lot of issues and but now i've been using them in tunes and even if you want like a suspended symbol sound on a downbeat every couple bars mm-hmm. plus the stick sound on second snare the cross stick with them brush you know you have all these color options in your hands awesome yeah, I'm gonna have to check those out. I always like messing around with different sonic choices, and mm-hmm. and there's another there's a company out called uh, uh, Headhunter. I don't uh-huh. know if you've checked them out, and he but this guy makes a ton of like all these crazy brushes and like wire things, and they're sort of they're a little bit eclectic and and weird, but they're cool. Like they just have different you know different sonic options to them. So I I, sure. I dig that kind of stuff. I like checking out different uh, different sound choices and different ways to use you know the sticks and and things like that so i'm going to definitely look into those brushes cool the other thing about them because they have a, a longer handle you can actually get a, a rebound from because i found with students especially once you start teaching them brushes it's almost like they're starting from scratch they mm-hmm. really have a they have a hard 
you really kind of need a different technique than what the stick te technique that you've been using. So with, with these, because they're longer, you can kind of get a bounce out of them. So for let's play kind of easier to play your rolls and so forth than than traditional brushes. Huh. Yeah. So I guess what's the I don't know what the typical brush size is, but the I don't know either. And this is this is the, so the wood part is longer, so you can actually get a, you know you can bounce it. Hmm. Very interesting. I, I, it always amazes me when someone comes up with, with really anything like that because I just – I think about it. I'm like, oh, it makes perfect sense and it's logical. I've, I would just never – you know, if a, if a stick company or a brush company came to me and said, hey, we need you to invent something that you think you need, I would be like, I don't I don't know. Well, well again, it helps to have some situation where you're going I, – I, I don't have time to reach in my stick bag, put the brushes down, pull up – you know, some right. kind of situation where you go – Born you know, out of necessity. need is something completely – with all those colors already in my hands. So. That makes total sense. Well, Chad, thank you so much for, for, uh, for taking all this time to chat with me. I really, thank you, Nick. Appreciate it. It's absolutely. Fun. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure and, uh, I'll have to, I'll have to look you up next time I'm out in LA. I get out there frequently and I'm moving out there soon. So absolutely. Yeah. We'll probably do something in drum channel. That would so, be, yeah. that would be fantastic. So yeah. thank you again. And I encourage all the listeners to go to your site, chadwackerman.com and they can get in touch with you, take lessons from you, check out your brushes, your, your, uh, your, your new CDs, records, your CDs and, stuff, yeah. and all that stuff. And, uh, and again, thanks for everything. Thanks for what you do for the, for the drumming community. And I'll be talking to you soon. Oh, it's a, it's a gift to me. It's my pleasure. You know, it's really an honor to be able to, to do this stuff, to play drums, play clinics, get people to show up. It's just, you know, I, I feel completely lucky. Well, so do we for having you in the, in the drum world. So thank, thanks for, uh, for everything that you do. We appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate right. it. Bye-bye. See ya. So there you have it, Chad Wackerman. And for everything that we talk about during the podcast and ways that you can connect with Chad, you can head over to drummersresource.com forward slash session one four two. Also, be on the lookout for Drummers Resource Pro. It's my new membership site that I'm launching. And Drummers Resource Pro is a is a new interactive way that you can learn from and interact with the greatest drummers and music industry pros in the world. And I'm launching it on Wednesday, December 9th. And also, you'll be able to lock in an early bird special forever. So you'll be locked in at a, at a low price. And as long as you keep your membership, you'll be grandfathered in forever. So check that out, drummersresourcepro.com. And I'll be emailing you if you're on the email list uh, about that as well. Be sure to check me out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash drummers resource on Instagram at drummers resource and on Twitter at drummers R source. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.